Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. I'm the author of The Essential Guide to Writing a Novel. The second edition is out at Amazon. But I want to briefly today mention a, an important book, a very useful book regarding plotting your novel and maybe the next chapter of your novel. For many writers and screenwriters, this book is a touchstone. They have it in their libraries. The book is The Writer's Journey by Christopher Vogler, V-O-G-L-E-R. This is from the first couple of pages from Christopher Vogler's book. All storytelling follows the ancient patterns of myth, and all stories can be understood in terms of the hero's journey. The pattern of the hero's journey is universal. It is infinitely varied as the human race itself, and yet its basic form remains the same. That's Christopher Vogler. Vogler's theme is that all stories have the same structure. I was first bothered by this. Uh, Are we bothered by the idea that certain elements are found in all good novels? It seems to reduce things to a formula, doesn't it? It seems to take away from the spirit of exploration and adventure for the writer. But here's a, a funny thought experiment. What do all airplanes have? Wheels, engines, seats, flaps, rudders, landing gears. All airplanes have these in, in common. They have these common denominators. Successful stories are like airplanes. They have common denominators. A successful story contains element that, without them, the story is less than a story. It isn't a story. It isn't complete. It doesn't entertain, and it isn't rewarding for the reader. In the very first pages of Vogler's book, I have the third edition. Uh, 25th anniversary uh, edition is out now. The very first pages contain a remarkably useful device. It's a list which sets out the 12 stages of a hero's journey. Having trouble coming up with our plot, I certainly have trouble doing that many times. Think something might be missing? This chart is a set of tools we can use to help us plot. Most stories, successful stories, have these elements. Here they are. Uh, I'll read all 12 of them, but uh, they, they deserve some expansion, and, and the expansion is in Christopher Vogler's book. Uh, the first step is the ordinary world. The second is the call to adventure. The third, the refusal of the call. Four, meeting with the mentor. The fifth step is crossing the first threshold. The sixth is tests allies, and enemies. The seventh is approach to the innermost cave. Eighth is ordeal. Nine is reward. Ten, the road back. Eleven, resurrection. And twelve, return with the elixir. Most stories have all of these elements. Some plots are are physical journeys, other are more internal. The key sentence is, from Vogler, at heart, 
Despite its infinite variety, the hero's story is always a journey, end quote. The metaphor is of a long ride, or, or better, a, a, ro- a ride up a hill. Uh, can you think of a, a novel where this isn't true? I can't off the top of my head. Vogler isn't necessarily speaking of the Lord of the Rings or Huckleberry Finn, which are about real journeys. The physical aspect of the journey can be metaphorical, but the hero takes these journeys. If we're thinking how to bump up our plot or or why is our plot incomplete, check out Christopher Vogler's book, The Writer's Journey, a wonderful resource. I want to return in this episode to our discussion of showing and telling. Uh, The last uh, episode, we ended with some uh, examples of how a weak writer would write a description by telling and how a strong writer would show the same thing by showing instead of telling. I'd like to give a couple more examples. Here is telling. The restaurant was noisy and fun. Is there evidence? Amy Tan and the Bonesetter's daughter gives us evidence of a restaurant being noisy and fun. Children use chopsticks to play percussion on teacups and water glasses. The waiter, who led Ruth and Art to their tables, had to shout above the clatter of plates being delivered and taken away. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, She sets out. The restaurant is noisy and fun, gives us images, things to look at and listen to. She has given us evidence. Here is uh, Michael Conley, or or rather, here is me, uh, ruining Michael Conley. Uh, The hotel room was cheap and old. That's telling. Here's how Michael Conley, in his novel The Poet, shows the same thing. My room was small, and when I sat on the edge of the bed, it sank at least half a foot, the other side rising by an equal amount with the accompanying protest of old springs. It was a ground-floor room with spare but neat furnishings and the stale smell of cigarettes. The yellowed blinds were up, and I could see a metal grate over the one window. Michael Conley is showing us that the hotel room was cheap and old, and, and what wonderful writing. Here is one of my favorite writers, Gene Shepard, in, uh, well, this is me being a bad writer. Here's telling. Big Al wasn't very smart and easy to set up. Well, here's how Gene Shepard does it in a fistful of Fig Newtons. He'll show us the same thing. Hey, this is dumb. I could eat the whole damn box. What kind of dumb game is this? That's Gene Shepard. Here's Stuart Woods, uh, or here's me again, uh, telling the envelope was important. See how that lies there? It doesn't create an image. Stuart Woods, in his novel DC Dead, writes, Stone removed a thick black envelope and pulled a tab that broke the seal. Woods is showing us the envelope is important. Here's telling. Even though she was poor, she tried to be presentable. See how flat that is? Here's Martin Cruz Smith in his novel The Rose showing us the same thing. Her hair hung loose in red-brown coils. Her corduroy coat was velvet with coal dust, and she wore a satin ribbon around her neck to balance her ensemble. 
that's really good writing. Here, uh, here is me being inert. Nancy's poverty had led to her tuberculosis, and Oliver was the only one who seemed to care she was sick. Well, here is the wonderful Charles Dickens in Oliver Twist showing us the same thing. She rocked herself to and fro, caught her throat, and uttering a gurgling sound, struggled and gasped for breath. Nancy, cried Oliver, what is it? The girl beat her hands upon her knees and her feet upon the ground, and suddenly stopping, drew her shawl close around her and shivered with cold. Here's me telling, this woman has seen it all. <laughs> That's so poor. Here's Sarah Grun in, in her wonderful novel, Water for Elephants. I'm gonna, she's going to show us that this woman has seen it all. Her hair is must her mouth smudged with lipstick. She holds a burning cigarette in one hand. Doesn't that show you with a wonderfully strong image that she's seen it all? Let's do one more. This is uh, me ruining Oscar Wilde. Dorian Gray was indolent. That's telling. Here is uh, Oscar Wilde in the picture of Dorian Gray. One afternoon, a month later, Dorian Gray was reclining in a luxurious armchair in the little library of Lord Henry's house in Mayfair. We're talking about showing and telling uh, with these examples. What uh, Showing is harder, as, as we mentioned in the last episode, because you often have to place your character in a certain position in your scene in order to, to show some information. But what if that character isn't uh, in the scene, isn't positioned correctly? The key is you can save it for later. If your character isn't in a, in a position in your novel uh, for you to reveal something about him, then it's probably not the proper time to let the reader know about the fact. Readers can wait. You can, you can ration your relevations, your showing relevations about your character. You can save it for later. Here's an example of, of saving it for later. Here's a part of a scene where the author, who is telling rather than showing, now this is the author telling, rather than showing. Allison's passion was crew racing, and she trained in a single-seat shell, and often made dangerous mistakes as she rode, such as going out into rough water. Her father had founded Western Investments, and Allison had, had, been, had been raised in a huge house in Chuckanut Drive overlooking Puget Sound. Every sentence of that is uh, vanilla. It's just set out there as background. It's a laundry list of things about Allison. Well, how does an author show this information instead of telling it? Allison gripped an oarlock as the racing shell lifted and sank into the swell. Goosebumps had, goosebumps had risen all along her arms, and she could see her breath. Her wet sweatshirt clung to her skin, and seawater dripped from her sweatpants onto the bottom of the shell. She touched her nose where her eyeglasses should have been. They must have fallen off when she was in the water. She hugged herself, shivering. 
This show version is much more vivid than the than the tell version. We learn Allison is in a rocking boat, uh, a racing shell, that she's fallen into the water, and she has been doing something dangerous out in a racing racing shell on water that had swells. But we ask, what about the information regarding her huge home and her investment banker father? It's not needed. Not here, anyway. If her father's success and the size of Allison's home are important, show that or reveal that information where it has uh, a connection to the action. Don't tell it. Show it. Uh, Something like this. Uh, Allison stepped into the hallway. A portrait of her grandfather hung above the marble table, and the old guy always always seemed to stare at her, carrying a dripping umbrella. The first-floor maid smiled quickly at her. This little vignette of, of Allison arriving home shows the wealth of her upbringing. It's much better than just saying she was raised wealthy. Sometimes, uh, for me, and maybe for you, it's, it's hard to hold back information about a character that we have developed. We spend a lot of time, particularly on our hero, uh, with aspects of her personality, uh, maybe the villain and the sidekick too, and we want to lay it out for the reader. It's wonderful. We've worked so hard on it. Our character's quirky and lovable, but it's a mistake to set it all out, to tell. We can ration it. Save it for later when our scene, where we, where we have put our characters, allows us to show the reader more about the character. We will return to showing and telling in later episodes. It's such an important topic. But I want to uh, talk about a, a grammatical aspect of writing fiction here. It's the difference between first, second, and third person. This is called the grammatical person, and it's sometimes confused with point of view. They're different concepts. Uh, English has distinguishes three grammatical persons. The first person, uh, this is uh, when the character speaks directly to the reader, saying, quote, I left the car, or my head hurt, or I couldn't decide. Here are examples of novels written in the first person. This is the remarkably lovely first few words of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. To begin my life with the beginning of my life. Isn't that wonderful? Here is uh, the first words of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering. I was glad of it. I never like long walks. Here's the first lines of Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man. We're talking about the grammatical person, and this is the first person. Listen to him say, I and me. I was leaning against the bar in a speakeasy on 52nd Street, waiting for Nora to finish her Christmas shopping when a girl got up from the table where she had been sitting with three other people and came over to me. She was small and blonde, and whether you looked at her face or at her body in powder blue sports clothes, the result was satisfactory. And that's uh, Dashiell Hammett. 
The main advantage of writing in the first person the, is that it instantly involves the reader because it's intimate. The character is confiding to the reader. Few things endear a person to another as the willingness to confide. That person trusts us enough to let us in on his life. The second advantage of the first-person story is that in a first-person novel, the narrator, who is telling the story to the reader, usually, usually needs to sound like someone talking. The narrative may be less constructed, uh, less artful than in a third-person novel. Not always, but in a first-person novel, the writing can be less formal because the entire story is dialogue. The narrator is telling the story to the reader. The main disadvantage of the first person is that it severely limits the knowledge available to the reader, in that the reader can only know what the protagonist knows. Writing certain genres, such as thrillers in the first person, is particularly hard because thrillers often feature a devilish plot developed outside the knowledge of the protagonist. Occasionally, a, a first-person protagonist will deliberately keep information from his new pal, you, the reader. But this is risky because it may break the trust and so the bond that is between the reader and the character. Novelist André Dubose com, uh, points to another concern with first-person writing. Quote, when I write in the first person, I tend to be too wordy. My first-person narrators tend to tell everything, end quote. Uh, related to Dubose's comment is that writing in the first person may induce the writer to write the way he talks, the words spilling out. Novelist David Morell notes, quote, Unfortunately, a transcription of even the best oral storytelling proves that what sounds effective in casual across-the-table setting is wordy and ill-focused on the page. So our dialogue, even in a first-person narrator uh, novel where the, where the hero is speaking to the reader, needs to be uh, constructed. It's not uh, simply whatever we think and we tap down on our keyboard. The second person, we're talking about grammatical persons, the second person is, you did this, you went over there. This is difficult to do and, and irritating, in my opinion, to read. It's almost never used, but there are a few exceptions, uh, such as Jay McEnany's uh, Bright Lights in Big City. Here are, are the first few lines of a second-person novel. You are not the kind of guy who would be at a place like this at, a time, at this time of the morning. But here you are, and you cannot say that the terrain is entirely unfamiliar, although the details are fuzzy. You are at a nightclub talking to a girl with a shaved head. The club is either the Heartbreak or the Lizard Lounge, and all would become clear if you could just slip into the bathroom and do a little more Bolivian marching powder. Fiction also, uh, always requires a suspension of disbelief because fiction is not a history, but it's an invented story. Writing in the second person requires an additional level of disbelief in that it requires the reader, uh, who is the object of all, you did this and you did that, uh, to be a character in the novel, the main character. Uh, the second person invites the reader to scoff, I would never do that. Who's the writer kidding? 
Bolivian marching powder up my nose, it, it'll be a cold day. The third grammatical person is the third person. Most novels are written in the third person, as in, he ran toward town, and she saw the lady lose her balance, and she remembered how her father would eat peas with a knife. Saul Stein, the novelist and writing instructor, says that third person is easier to do than first person. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that, but uh, Stein always knows what he's talking about. Here are uh, the first few sentences of Charles Fraser's Cold Mountain, written in the third person. At the first gesture of morning, flies began stirring. Inman's eyes and the long wound at his neck drew them, and the sound of their wings and touch of their feet were soon more potent than a yardful of rooster in rousing a man to wake. So he came to yet one more day in the hospital ward. A principal advantage of third person is that it allows the reader to jump around from one place to another, from, from one character to another. You don't need to stay inside the mind of the protagonist as you do in a first-person novel. Uh, changing the texture and pace of a novel is easier if the reader can instantly be somewhere else with other people, doing other things in different locations. Uh, being able to, to leave the protagonist, leave the hero in the story, to go to someone else, such as the sidekick, also allows the reader to know things the character, the main character, does not know, such as that a fellow with a knife is waiting down the dark alley. Uh, some stories demand that information be withheld from the protagonist, that the hero doesn't know certain things, usually bad things coming his way, is a main source of tension. Changing the grammatical person uh, from first to third person or vice versa is rarely done within a novel, such as uh, having some of the story in the first person and some in the third person. But it has been done to great effect once in a while, such as in Dickens's Bleak House, where some of the story is told in the third person and in the first and some in first person that of uh, Esther Summerson, she where she speaks directly to the reader. Uh, critics de critics debate over whether it was effective, but few doubt the greatness of Bleak House. That changing from first uh, uh, third to first person in a novel is rarely done indicates that readers and so publishers don't like it much. That's the end of this podcast. Next episode, we're going to talk about a critical uh, skill, and that's point of view. An uncontrolled point of view probably sinks our novel, but learning to control the point of view isn't too hard. Until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>